Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa Idea in the 21st century. Inner peace. That's the human journey. For the first episode of year two at the Iowa Idea podcast, I'm joined by Ed Hess. Ed is Professor Emeritus of Business Administration in the Darden Graduate School of Business at the University of Virginia. His new book, Hyper Learning, How to Adapt to the Speed of Change, sets forth a cognitive, emotional, and behavioral model designed to enable the highest levels of human performance in the digital age. Ed is the author of 13 books and over 160 practitioner articles dealing with innovation and learning cultures, systems, and processes. Some of the common themes of his work address high-performing individual and organizational performance. Ed's work has appeared in Fortune Magazine, Harvard Business Review, Fast Company, Wired, Forbes, Inc., Huffington Post, Washington Post, Business Week, and the Financial Times. His book, Smart Growth, was named a top 25 business book in 2010 for business owners by Inc. Magazine and was awarded the Wachovia Award for Research Excellence. His book, Learn or Die, was an Amazon bestseller and was awarded the Wells Fargo Award for Research Excellence. Prior to hyperlearning, Ed co-authored Humility is the New Smart, Rethinking Human Excellence in the smart machine age. Ed and I dig into the importance of hyperlearning, built on high quality, making meaning conversations, caring, trusting teams, and a mastery of self through the reduction of one's ego, and why those are all critical if we're to successfully adapt and address the power and potential of digital transformation. I appreciated Ed sharing his journey from high school in Georgia to attending the University of Florida on a scholarship as an athletic manager to the world of investment banking and ultimately to academia. His passion for understanding deep principles has guided his work for decades. His research explored high-performance organizations, which led to high-performance leaders, which in turn led to the science of learning. Spoiler alert. Humility is the key element of high-performing leaders and organizations. Ed and I explore the need for us to embrace our humanity, work on inner peace, and help others if we're truly to succeed. See the links in the show description for more resources and hyper-learning. And if you're enjoying these podcasts, please do me a favor. Tell a friend or a colleague about it. Leave a positive review on Apple Podcasts. His ratings and reviews can really help out the show. It was an absolute honor having Ed join me on the podcast. I want to thank him for his time and insights. And I'd also like to thank Adam Hansen, author of Outsmart Your Instincts, for introducing me to Ed. Adam and I have had some fantastic making meaning conversations over the past year, and I just really appreciate all of his help and insights. And I hope you enjoy the episode. Take care. Ed, welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. It is an honor to have you here. If you don't mind, for our guests, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, first, thank you very much for, for having me. And uh, you, have, you have made a huge, much bigger than you even know, contribution to my life since my wife is an Iowa girl and was raised in Hosting, Iowa. And it's the, my first podcast in Iowa. And so she told me this morning that I finally have made it to the big time. And uh, so thank you very much for in, inviting me. A little bit about myself. Uh, I was born in rural Georgia and, and uh, raised, raised there and very fortunate through uh, great teachers and came from a very humble family and was able to go to uh, college on a 
full athletic scholarship, a football scholarship, even though I was not a football player. And, um, and uh, that got me uh, going. And uh, I'm and sort of an unusual person in the sense that I've had three very different careers and, uh, and along the way that basically were un, unplanned and were hap, happenstance and uh, from opportunities that came that way because of people who believed in me and saw something that I didn't know I had. And so my life has been a life of, of, of going into the unknown and figuring things out. And, um, you know, if, if you will, um, going into ultimately in the business world and investment banking and not knowing, not being a business person um, and uh, or going into academia, if you will, and um, knowing all about business and everything and entrepreneurship, but not having been traditionally trained. And so I've always sort of been an outlier and uh, but uh, uh, and figured things out. And that's looking back on it has been the thing that has brought me to where I am and why we're together is, is you know, um, we're now entering in the digital age where everybody is going to have to be able to continually adapt and learn new skills as technology grows. So um, I've been very, very fortunate to have many, many great mentors that learned from many brilliant people, smart people, kind, caring people. It's all about otherness. And, um, and I've had my, I've had my ups and downs. I mean, I've had, uh, uh, big transitions in my, my life where I had to change and take ownership of myself much more. And so I've been through those periods just like most people have. And, um, so it's, it's not been all gravy and roses, and, uh, <laughs> but it's been a great journey. And, um, uh, and, uh, and I'm just, uh, uh, this week was awarded emeritus status at my university, and so I am I'm now able to spend more of my time out in the real world talking about trying to help people learn what's coming with technology and how us human beings uh, can be successful with the technology and not basically just lose our jobs from technology. So that's, that's sort of a little story. It's, um, uh, you know, Rural, rural background, uh, uh, University of Florida education, University of Virginia Law School, New York University Masters of Law uh, degree, uh, worked in New York, worked globally around the world, uh, but basically still just a, uh, a country boy who um, 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 had a great football coach who basically opened up life to him and got, got me into the, got me out in the real world. Ed, thank you, and I, I, I really appreciate just uh, you know kind of jumping back to uh, that your wife feels like you've made it now that you've been <laughs> on the Iowa Idea podcast. So uh, all of your teaching accomplishments, all of the books that you've authored, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that I could help. <laughs> you, you have, sir. You have. And uh, out of curiosity, uh, where did your wife grow up? Well, she grew up in Holstein and Ames. All right. All right. Yeah, love it. Uh, want to jump into your, your journey a little bit because I'm I'm fascinated by it. And you, you hinted at it in, in your intro is that you went to college on a uh, football scholarship, but you didn't play football. And I know uh, the high school coach, that early mentor of yours, had a really influential Part of your life, but could you tell listeners a little bit about that kind of nuance that you were on athletic scholarship but not a football player? Uh, I wasn't a football player. I um, um, my football and I was I, I was very famous in my little country town because I was the only male in the second grade who wasn't chosen for Pop Warner football. In other words, I was a chubby little boy, and uh, at that time. And uh, I wasn't chosen on the football team, and, and, and that sort of started me out, and that meant I had to basically build my reputation differently, and I, and I, and I did uh, do that by trying to be the smartest kid in the school. I was that obnoxious kid always raising his hand, trying to tell the teacher that I had the right answer. But I went on to, uh, when I went on to high school, uh, my family was uh, 
very different than most families there. My mother was from uh, uh, New England, so she was a Yankee, and my father was a, an immigrant uh, from Germany, and he escaped from the Holocaust. And we lived in a very rural part of Georgia during times where you know, outsiders weren't that welcome. And um, as I was getting ready to go to the eighth grade high school, the football coach, and, and in Georgia, football is king. And this football coach was just a very successful. He he was the, he was the real thing, and he basically was the most revered person in that whole area of Georgia, not just my little town. And he called me up, and he said, you're starting school, eighth grade, right? I said, yes, sir. He says, I'd like for you to basically come to my house at 7 o'clock, um, uh, 7.30 every uh, first morning of school. I says, okay, coach, uh, what do you got in mind? He says, you're going to ride to school with me. And by the way, you're going to come every morning for the next five years to my house at 7.30 and ride to school with me. And so he basically, I rode to school with the most powerful man in the city. And the, and, and, and my life and my family's life changed because I don't know why. He basically reached out to me and said, you know, I've got you. You're going to do well. And he knew I wasn't a football player. And he says, you're going to become an athletic trainer. I said, what is that? He said, you're going to basically tape ankles and help people when they get injured. And he says, I'm going to make you really study hard on this. He did. And I became an athletic trainer, and I wrote my first article when I was a senior in high school that was published in Coach and Athlete Magazine, the most prestigious high school coaching magazine about athletic training. And that led to me getting a scholarship to the University of Florida. And I started out as an athletic trainer, and after six months, I was given the opportunity to basically go into analytics. I don't know if you watched the movie Moneyball, but... Um, yeah. Um, and I was sort of like the little, I wasn't as large, but I was sort of like the little <laughs> fat kid. I was the data guy. And this was before computers. Okay. And so I created a data analytics system where we could analyze every game we had in all our tendencies. And then in the summertime, I worked all summer. I stayed in school scouting the opponents and every player on every team we played. I knew exactly how they acted in certain situations. So, for example, our quarterback could look at a, a, a defender, a back, back defender, and say, if his foot's pointing this way, this is the pass defense. And so he could audible. And, uh, and, I, and I peaked at a very early time. I, I peaked when I was, I graduated from college when I was 20. When I was 20 years old, three biggest college football coaches in America came individually to copy my system. Era Parsegian from Notre Dame, Daryl Royal from Texas, and Johnny McKay from Southern California. And so some of my friends still say to this date that my life peaked at age 20, that it didn't get any better than that. And But that is, is how I went to college and paid my way through college. And, and uh, uh, But it was because of my football coach, Charlie Grisham, who, who I remember in, uh, every night, and him and his wife, I remember him every night in my prayers. To this day. Thanks, Ed. Yeah, I really, really appreciate that story. And I didn't know the data analytics part. I, uh, I, I love that. A side note is, you know, I, uh, I adjunct one class at the University of Iowa. I teach leading innovation, and it's about innovation in the context of the enterprise. So a little bit different than an individual entrepreneurial journey. But uh, one. Uh, I, I make the we just have a short scene from Moneyball, but every every class we watch the the whole uh, what's the problem uh, really uncomfortable conversation that uh, that Billy Bean has with the with the scouts. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so the uh, just a question because obviously you know Iowa City is also you know it's a Big Ten football town uh, and uh, football is pretty popular here. Uh, do you uh, do you still watch college football? Do you get uh, are you able to enjoy it, or are you always analyzing what's going on? Oh no, I I, I enjoy it. Uh, I mean, clearly, clearly, I, uh, I I I watch SEC football because of the, the, the South, right? But I do have to say, and I'll 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 do respect to the University of Iowa with my wife being also raised in Ames. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I am impressed with the Iowa State coach and what he has built. And so this past year, I uh, was, whenever whenever we could get it on our TV, 
I pulled I pulled for Iowa State because I I, I like the coach's philosophy. That doesn't mean I don't like Iowa's coach's <laughs> philosophy. It just means that there was a home field advantage there. Yeah, no, that that's great. Yeah, and uh, yeah, Campbell has brought a lot of energy and excitement to Ames that they haven't had in quite some time. So it's it's interesting too, just on the football front. Um, uh, Iowa starts their season in the fall. The uh, first game is against Indiana, and Indiana will be, you know, they're ranked for the first time in a long time starting a season. And then Iowa State also ranked highly. So it's, yeah, it's exciting, exciting times here. Um, Want to talk about, so I'm, we're jumping quite a bit and then we'll, we'll go back, but. Uh, I was really introduced to your writing through somebody that we have in common, and that's Adam Hansen. And um, he he was talking about hyper learning and just was, you know, and and for those that don't know Adam, Adam has a tremendous amount of positive energy when he's engaging. He's like, man, from our conversation, you're you're gonna love this. You're gonna love this book. So uh, I I dug into hyper learning and and I love it. And there's a few things I'd love to to dig into. Uh, but I think the, the biggest thing that, that really struck me and I'd love because of your, your career, both, you know, touching on investment banking, uh, touching on, uh, teaching and living through some really big digital transformation. I'll just tee this one up. Why is, what is hyper learning for the guests and why is it so important for, for folks? Let's let's first define like what I mean by hyper learning, and that's learning, unlearning, and relearning in a high quality way at the speed of change. And why is hyper learning so important? Hyper learning is so important because of technology. All right, Tech, technology is going to completely transform how we live, how we work, and who works. It's it's and it's all going to happen within the next, a big part of it, the next decade. And technology is going to be very smart and people will have work going forward if they can excel at doing things that technology can't do. And all of those things that the humans need to do is dependent upon the human ability to continuously adapt as the technology continues to advance. And so, you know, a job that someone has today, you know, the, the, the best prognosticators, there's no data, says that an average person coming out of high school today will have five completely different careers in their life, right? And so hyper-learning is that ability to basically understand what's going on and figuring out how I can add value that the technology doesn't add. And as the technology advances, how do I continually, if you will, train myself and learn new skills so I stay ahead of the technology? Um, and this is, you know, the best research out there basically says over the next, uh, you know, 12 years or so, 47% of the jobs in the United States are going to be automated, all right? So just round numbers, 50%, right. all right? That's a lot of people. And so and so it gets down to, okay, what can I do that the technology can't do? And there's two big buckets. You either can think differently than the technology, and that's where you and Adam come into play in one of the ways that technology, you know, it's going to be hard for technology to be creative, imaginative, and innovative, all right? That's just part of the thinking. There's another group, too. But, but the real way humans are going to be different for the near future is our ability to emotionally connect and relate to other human beings. And, that's, and that emotional part of connecting with people and being able to deliver value to people that they need be, and to care about people is 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 huge because that will be the hardest thing for technology to do. What's also clear is technology is going to be able to be emotional. 
So it's the degree of that human contact. And so the sad thing about it is, is that most people in most schools are not taught how to think in the way they need to think and, and are not taught as to how do I basically behave in ways that I can emotionally connect with other people because we're not taught in schools to manage ourselves, to manage our thinking, to manage our listening, to manage our emotions, to take, in effect, what I call ownership of ourselves, okay? And, right. You know, to be able to, you know, control how we think and how we behave. And um, I was never trained that way. I've been self-trained that way now for the last 10 to 15 years maybe even going back further than that, probably even goes you know, back 30 years uh, in the sense that, uh, you know, when I, when I was growing up, no one ever taught me anything about emotions. And I can remember, you know, decades ago, early in uh, our marriage, my wife and I were having a conversation. And, and one thing I am, I'm very smart because I, I also married somebody smarter than I am so I could learn. And, uh, um, and she's very, very smart. And we were having a conversation, and it was about something. And, and she and I was sort of getting a little riled up because she kept telling me I was wrong for the various reasons. And no matter what I said, I was still wrong. And she looked at me and she says, you seem to be raising your voice. Do you understand just because you feel like you're getting a little angry or upset with me that you don't automatically have to raise your voice? And I looked at her and said, can you say that again? She said, okay, you don't have to raise your voice if you feel this way. Didn't you learn that? I said, no one ever told me that. And, you know, and I'm sure she was yeah. thinking, oh my gosh, what a mistake I made. I mean, what <laughs> and, but the fact is, is that we can control our emotion. We can generate positive emotion. We can control. We are not the thoughts in our mind, right? Our mind basically is, is, is devised in a way which basically limits our ability to learn. And so all of this, all of this human stuff, humanistic stuff, what people don't understand is, is the biggest competition that everyone's going to have for having a meaningful work, meaningful work and a meaningful life in the digital age. The biggest competition, you know, is not Jim or Jane or Bob or... Uh, Janice, it's not other people. It's ourselves. It's how we basically come to the table. And can we come to the table in ways that we work well with other human beings? Because most human jobs are going to basically be done in small teams. And so all of that is sort of how this sort of fits together, that, that hyper-learning is that ability to continuously adapt but in order to continuously adapt, we got to come with the right story in our head and we got to behave in the right ways. So it's all about what's my story in the digital age and what kind of behaviors do I have to be good at? So it's a practical, it's a practical how-to book. Yes, thank you. And Ed, I want to dig in on, on kind of teaching and then also, as you said, with teams or 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 what we're, we're taught because uh, it's one of, so just uh, a little bit of background too is my master's research was on, uh, it was in the communication department, but my, my research project was actually a joint project with the computer science department. And this is in the mid nineties. We were looking at computer augmented group decision-making and where, like, where can the computer help, especially like with voting, it can quickly tabulate your input. But how do you, you know, how do you basically, uh, as we used to say, how do you give the shit work to the computer and what are the humans good at in this? Uh, but one of the things that, and then in my career doing a lot of work with high performing teams, businesses expect groups of people to work together really well, almost out of the gate, but we're rarely taught, uh, you know, we're rarely intentional about setting up teams, team expectations, high-performing teams. And so that's another thing that I really appreciated in your book too, what you were laying out about teams, but also the importance about being a good team member is, is basically being a, a good person, 
right? It's like uh, that, you know, that you're intentional, uh, that you know what you're doing. And I think one of the things that really struck me and, and Adam and I talk about this in our conversations is one of the foundational elements that you've laid out is high quality meaning making conversations from human to human. What if, if you don't mind for listeners too, if they're not familiar, define it a little bit, but I'm really interested in your insight on why that is so important, why that's a foundational piece to hyperlearning. Okay. Uh, let me defi define it first. Yeah. High quality making meaning conversations. Those are conversations that are not about advocacy or self-promotion or competition. They're about seeking mutual understanding. I seek to understand you, truly understand you, by asking questions with an open mind and not judging you, etc. And you seek to try to understand me. And then we're not competing with each other. We're on the same team. Comp collaboration is not competition. And we're going to respect each other's human dignity, how we behave to each other. And it's in these types of conversations that the highest level of human thinking can occur. And that's that's science-based. And, and there's a huge gender difference here. The research is overwhelming that men tend to view collaboration in the workplace as a competition and who wins. All right. And women view it as a relational type of activity that making sure that everybody is heard and listened to and everybody feels good about the result. And it's not a competition. All right. It's relational where men believe it's a transaction like getting and the research is overwhelming. Um, whether you're trying to be innovative, which you're an expert at, or whether you're teams are working on solving complex problems, the most successful in the research is, comes from MIT and Carnegie Mellon, and it's been replicated eight times. The most successful uh, teams in the workplaces are teams, just, just say, that are made up of five women and zero men. The second most successful team is four women and one man. The third is, you know where I'm going, three women and two men. I'm starting to see a pattern. <laughs> there, is, there is a pattern. And us men, I'm, I'm a man, have to accept that. And, and the science. And, and it's because we've been raised, if you will, to be strong. We've been raised to, you know, to win. And when you get in, into the digital age, the reason why collaboration is so important the science of learning says clearly we're all suboptimal learners. We are wired to go in the world. I go out in the world today, and what am I going to see? I'm going to see 0.1% of, of what I can possibly see, theoretically. Okay, But I'm also only going to see what I believe. I will not see or process information which disagrees with my story of how the world works. That's science. That's neuroscience. Right. Well, if you think about it, my life's very different than your life. And so you're going to basically look at the same thing I'm looking at, and you're going to see things I don't see, and I'm going to see things you don't see. Well, in a world that's going to pace is going to change, and knowledge is going to be created at such a fast pace because of technology, Shelf life of new knowledge is going to be two to three years. So no individuals can be able to keep up. No individual is going to be smarter than a smart than artificial intelligence. All right. The, the, the big, big smart machine, so to speak. So I need you. I need people different than me. Came from different backgrounds. We've got different training. And if we can come together as a team. All right. Set the stage, if you will which allows us to basically have the chance of excelling at thinking differently than the machines and adding value differently, we're going to have meaningful work. And so that takes otherness. That's what collaboration is about. Nobody, nobody can achieve thinking excellence by themselves because we are inherently wired to be suboptimal thinkers. 
We go out in the world seeking confirmation of what we believe, affirmation of our ego. We're all going around wanting pats on our head. <laughs> Basically, you know, somebody pats us on our head, theoretically, we believe what they're saying or, you know, they believe what we're saying. And if, if my thinking gets challenged, a flexive or automatic reaction is deny, defend, deflect. And so the work I talked about before, which I was talking about inner peace, quiet mind, quiet ego, is we have to take ownership and accept the science, accept the reality that the world's going to change digitally. And this, we're going to have to basically start taking ownership and managing our way so we can basically be, most people are going to have to learn how to go into the unknown and figure it out, which is what you are expert at doing. That's what you teach and that's what you train and that's what you do. That's going to be a mission critical for everybody because the change is going to be so fast and so dynamic. How do I figure out what to do? Well, you got to have a process to go in the world and figure things out and not be scared. It's like what's going to what's going to happen is is that if you remember when you were a child learning to ride a bike, if all of the audience can remember that. Generally speaking, most of us either someone there with generally there with us, a parent or a, a, a relative or a older friend or something. And if it's a if you don't have training wheels, they're holding the bike and you get on the bike, they let it go, what happens? You fall off. Or if it's training wheels, what do you do? You maybe get a little part and you fall off. What does a child do? Most all children may cry. They're on the ground. They pick themselves up. They immediately go towards the bike. They get on the bike and they try again. That's what we have to do. We have to have the courage to try, the courage to learn. And when, when we don't figure it out, we get up and we try again. And that's made much easier if we have other people trying to, other people as part of a team trying to solve the problem or achieve the result. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. Thank you. And, and one of the challenges, and you use the word uh, transactional, and uh, that's one of the things from a it's been kind of my my hunch or hypotheses, but I haven't researched it. But when I work with a lot of people in organizations and 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 even even conversations that I have, uh, you know, maybe with family members, it's I see a lot of things where getting a particular degree was almost a guarantee for success for a long time, right? And and then I felt like it's like I've already learned this. I don't need to learn anymore or I'm good. And to your point, I think one of one of the things that is important for me is how do we keep learning or, or even with hyper learning, how do we unlearn also? Because I know what was uh, really uh, interesting for me, it was a few years back reading the half-life of facts, right? And even looking at scientific facts that we we take, you know, like textbooks are written about and a little bit later, right? There There is a half-life to all facts. So if we know that information has a half-life, it, just the things that we've learned, or I when I when I talk to some of my colleagues, I mean, how long ago was it that you were in your MBA program? How long ago that you were an undergrad? Think about all the technological changes. Think about the interconnectedness. The MBA programs that were in the 90s, they really weren't talking about uh, the threat of the internet. They weren't talking about globalization, right? I mean, it, broadly, it was, we would talk about, but we wouldn't really see that specifically. But it's just so interesting to me is that, uh, and I feel like it is an ego-driven thing. I learned this, it should be good, so that it is hard to unlearn. But as you said, if you, if you suppress the ego and you work with others, you can see new ways and do new things to learn. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. You're, you're spot on. And, and, and it's, it's going to be mission critical for everybody. Uh, to basically tell themselves a new story about I've got to I've got to basically continuously learn, all right. And what's so interesting is we're uh, the United States is the most competitive survival of the fittest democratic capitalist culture in the world. 
all right? And so we've been raised in competition and survival of the fittest. Well, that story is basically not going to work going forward, all right? It's, it's and, and people have got to, you know, I, I tell people, your biggest competition in the digital age is yourself. Not Jim or Jane, yourself. And I said, what do you mean? You have to take ownership of yourself, manage how you think, manage your emotions, and sort of be on a journey to best self. And they say, wow, that's new. I says, no, it's not new. It's 2,500 years old, all right? It's all of the ancient philosophies and all of the seven great religions of the world are built upon the same values about these types of philosophies as to what is a meaningful life, right? And et cetera. And so it's, you know, people say, well, you know, I'm, I, I work hard. I do, I do physical training or I run every day or whatever. And I'm saying, wait a minute, physical training is good, but you're going to have to do mind training and you're going to have to do heart training. So every day I want you to do some mind training and heart training. And we talk about what that is. And they say, yeah. holy mackerel, you mean PT is not enough anymore? No, PT is not enough. Training your mind and training your heart so that basically you're the type of person that is able to learn things. And it's not just people that have corporate jobs, trade services, for example. Trade service people are going to be in very, very high demand if they're in the right area. And the right area is I can go in, somebody's got a problem whether it's their plumbing, their electrical, and it requires me to figure out what the problem is, and then it requires me to try different things to fix the problem, and then if there's some manual dexterity, I'm a home run. I mean, trade services are going to be, you know, com computers, technology is not going to basically go into somebody's house and fix many of the problems that need to be fixed. All right, because not only it's dexterity, but they don't know how to basically define what the problem is right. and iterate it. And so, okay, am I in a trade job that's going to be automated? Well, am I doing the same thing every day? Yeah, I'm doing pretty much the same thing every day. Well, it's going to be automated. So you need to get a trade that it's not the same thing every day where you're bringing value to each individual situation. And there's huge demands uh, for that, huge opportunities. Same thing with most of the human services, child care, social work, uh, counseling, um, you know, et cetera. Um, unfortunately, in our society, all of these service jobs historically have not been paid the value that people are adding. And so what's got to change is, is people have got to be paid the real, you know, a meaningful amount. That, that, or, but so it's these types of skills that all of a sudden, you know, everybody, everybody's not my competition. I'm my biggest competition. Can I learn how to learn? Yeah, thanks. Ed, one of the things you were talking about when you referred to maybe, you know, this is 2,500 years old or older, because um, I, I hadn't considered this before, but I just had this vision of just looking at really zooming out on kind of a, a timeline. And to your, your point, maybe the, the, the U.S. capitalistic, democratic kind of bender that we've been on, it's more of a blip in a giant timeline, right? But, but for, for us right now, it's all we know. But right, it's like, sometimes I look at self-correcting systems, but they're all on different scales. And, and to, your, to your point, too, is what, what can we learn? from good principles? And also, what are, again, what are the things that we have to unlearn as we were but even as, as we were taught in school, how did you, how did you prove yourself on a test? Uh, a lot of multiple choice tests and a lot of true-false, and yet we rarely confront those in the real world. It, it is, it's, it's more how do we make good decisions with incomplete information? How do we sift through signal and noise? How, how do we, you know, is, and stealing from Annie Duke, how do we have more of an archer's mindset that we're trying to get as close to the bullseye as possible? But we're not confronted with a lot of uh, true, false, or multiple choice right now. Yeah, we're, we're not confronted. And, and, and the thing about it is what's so interesting is to my comment about the United States being the most um, 
you know, survival of the fittest competitive culture. It was not that way always. From 1947 to 1972, we had a very different business culture, very different. It was the era of shared prosperity. It was the greatest era in U.S. capitalist history for basically growth and development of people in, in financial. Uh, that, uh, and it was an intentional, and that was the, the, the philosophy. And the philosophy changed and started changing in the mid-70s in the last years, you know, the last yeah. three plus years. So this is not something that we have to go learn something completely new that we've never experienced. It's that we, we got to go back to a different way of working and way of, of, of being. Now, the digital age is different than what happened in 47 to, say, 72. And the aspects of people taking ownership of themselves and being able to learn really how. Notice, I've never anywhere here said that people are going to have to be uh, really, really good at knowing things. Okay? No, what people are going to have to really, really good is, is at not knowing things. All right? We all grew up in an education system which basically says you're smart if you got the highest grade. Well, the fact of the matter is the computers are going to know way more than any human being will ever know. So it's not how much I know, it's my how-to skills. Okay? How to think, how to manage emotions, how to collaborate, how to go into the unknown. It's my how-to skills. Yeah. How do you learn how-to skills? You learn how-to skills by doing stuff, right. by failing and learning. You yep. don't learn how-to skills by taking computer-type multiple-choice tests, all right? Okay, there's, you know, it just it's, so it's a whole mentality that's got to change, you know, how-to. And so people got to be really good at figuring stuff out and trying stuff, having the courage. You know, I, I think I can basically, you know, come up with a, a, a different way of, you know, whatever, uh, a different corn seed, a different color corn, a different this, a different that. Okay, what do you have to do to try it? Does it cost a lot of money to try it? No. Well, then what's, why you're not trying it? Well, I haven't thought about it. Well, try it. See what happens. <laughs> you're, you're hitting upon one, uh, one of the things that's really interesting for me too is, is where uh, established organizations struggle with innovation. And so a couple themes too is like uh, a mature organization becomes really risk averse. It's about predictability, right? In, in its numbers, especially, especially Wall Street numbers, are we going to hit our quarter numbers? How far uh, or close are we going to be on those? And uh, like Six Sigma movements, right? For like, we, we don't want variation from output and, and those all have their, their place. I'm not, but uh that that doesn't work in the innovation space and as my friend Saul Kaplan says is that uh it's uh you can't analyze your way to innovation because it it is a generative act and like you said, it's it's through prototyping and it's through experimentation and uh it's not as predictable as people would love it to be and that's where uh I uh the Illinois Institute of Technologies Institute of Design. I remember sitting down with uh, Marty Thaler, who teaches prototyping there years ago, and a frame that he gave me it just clicked. I loved it. But he divides prototypes into two categories: build to think, build to decide. And when you're doing your low fidelity prototypes and your research, just are we even thinking about this the right way? Like. Right. Just because you can conceptualize it doesn't mean you're thinking about it the right way. So you even have to test that. And as you get better and better and it becomes higher fidelity, now you're making decisions, right? Like business trade-offs. Here's how much it would cost to do this. Here's the risk reward. But even the notion of build to think too, to what I'm, at least where I'm connecting dots uh, for better or worse with what you're saying too, is, is the go do, right? You have to, you actually have to get out there and do an experiment and learn in the process. That's why, like, all my classes that I teach, uh, you know, it's a big portion of it is teaching how to do rapid experiments, how to basically come up, come up with an idea and 
and and the thing that's very hard for students is to do the following okay you got an idea now let's step back what must be true for this idea to be good and they pretty good at coming up with those yeah okay now, what if it's true means the idea won't work that's the hard part for me right and then let's go prioritize and let's just go do a small experiment which what in most cases it's disconfirming what if it's true makes this idea basically not doable and you have to change it is it pretty good idea is it possible to answer that question pretty easily yeah it usually is all right so why don't you go figure that out first come back in two days all right and then we can iterate and there's different ways of doing it you're an expert at yeah. it but it's that ability to to have a process and that's what you teach it's a process a process of how to go in the world and figure it out mm -hmm. and you and you you figure it out by and it all comes down to how you think about what you're trying to do and what must be true what if true you know and what if it's not true etc and how do you basically chunk it and and people then learn that wait a minute what that really is is i'm trying to iterate how i'm learning and iterating and and being pretty efficient but also it's no longer is it my ego wrapped up in being right all the time yes yes yeah i uh uh a uh, former coworker and 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 friend of mine i always appreciated his attitude to, he so he worked on software with the software development teams but we we would work together on innovation uh projects and uh he himself was very good at keeping his ego down and he always encouraged his team to we're we're looking for the right answer we're not looking to be right and that's the way he would frame it with his team is we're all trying to learn this and it's not it's not a competition about who has the the right answer because we're going into an unknown space and if you have experience here please like don't don't hold back right but the even just the framing of of you know that the individual is not trying to be right we're trying to we're trying to learn the right thing and and the research is overwhelmingly in this direction the two biggest inhibitors to learning are ego and fear you've got to manage ego and you've got to manage your fears and fear comes about from fear from looking bad fear from not being liked okay yeah yeah um and fear of failure but ego and fear and so you've got to manage ego and fear and and because if you if you think about it, who was the smartest kids in the, in the schools? The kids that got the highest grades on the exams. Well, how'd you get the highest grades? You made the fewest mistakes. Well, that game is over because technology is always going to know more than we know. And so I have, I spend a lot of time working with students and working with executives and people and teachers, et cetera, that you need a new definition of smart. And it's called New Smart, which is in the book. You know, I'm defined not by what I know or how much I know, but by the quality of my thinking, listening, relating, and collaborating. My stories of the world are not reality. They're only my stories of the world. Okay? I'm not my ideas. Yeah. I'm not going to basically, my ego's not invested in this idea. It's just an idea. I'm still a good person, no matter whether that's a good idea or a bad idea. Okay, you know, I got to uh, be. And the the biggest thing that's that most people have never been trained to do when you come up with an idea. All right, most people go out and they have an idea and they say, "I'm going to see if if you know, I'm going to talk to some customers, see whether they like that." And in a lot of cases, people say that sounds cool, and they say, "Got a great idea." Uh, what you you don't have a great idea until you have actively gone out and searched for the information that basically would kill the idea. Right, right, right. And so it's this whole way of being that we have to sort of 
come back to, and we got to redefine smart, all right? The, the, the new smart person in the digital age is the person that's, that's improving how he or she thinks, listens, and collaborates all the time. Yeah, at, at the, uh, thinking about a, a you know a, a different approach like you're describing it too uh, makes me feel better about some of the things that I did in the past when I would build new design teams and new innovation teams. Uh, one of the things that was always included is we had do a little bit of improv comedy training, and and part of that was uh, just a few of the the improv principles that I think. F- fit well i would love your critique here too but you know the the stereotypical one is it starts with yes and you're not saying no to an idea you're able to build it's it's how can we continue to build and so there's more of an ensemble mentality and different people take leads at different times uh but another one that i love is the intentionality there's declare and commit so when you you make a declaration you commit to it for a while as well and um just finding out some of the ways to be more supportive, but using more of an improv mentality early on, because we, you know, it's, we do a lot of time in design, trying to actively do divergent thinking and convergent thinking, where I think a lot of times where we skip right to the convergent thinking. Right. You skip to the most people skip because that's where they're the most comfortable. Right. And trained. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, you know this. I mean, uh, from having looked at my work, I mean, one of the mantras in my work over the last really ten years has been yes and yep instead of yes but all right and and uh, and that and I I learned that from one of the co-creators of the uh, the design institute at uh, Stanford. And in uh, uh, way in a conversation we had many years ago, and uh, and, and so this this in improv, uh, yeah, I like improv, and I've I've used it in my in my consulting work and in my teaching work because it's it does it does the wonderful things you said, but in in addition, yes, and it also forces people to focus on the other person emotionally is what's going on and opens them up to cues. So it makes them more uh, uh, basically aware. Yeah, you're right. I did. And I completely see, but you have, you have to actively listen and you have to be present, right? Like in some is like, you're not looking for the next punchline. You're actively listening and, and, who knows where this might go, right? Yeah, yeah, and it's so joyous because yeah. how do how do most people listen? Well, most people don't listen. Okay, most people are either making up their answer while you're talking, or most people basically come to a jump conclusion as to what you're talking about, and they're thinking about what's happening next or what happened previously in the previous meeting, or they're thinking about you know something completely different. All right, the, the research is pretty clear. Most people are not fully present when they're listening and being in improv is training for how to be fully present you're exactly right and uh, i love it and um, uh, but it's that and and if you think about it it's that you know i I use the term in my work inner peace let me let me define it a state of inner stillness stillness and calmness that enables you to embrace the world with your most non-judgmental, fearless, open mind with a lack of self-absorption. And and that's the human journey, okay? And that's when the, the best thinking occurs is when there's that inner calm and stillness. And I'm actually listening. Just letting it come in, and I'm fully present. I mean, you. I mean, you're you're an expert at this. You know this. So the question that 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 you have and I have is, as we do our work, is how do we help people come to the table in the right way, so they are ready to do the types of 
thinking and listening and collaborating that are going to be needed in the digital world. Yeah. It's scaling, you know, it's scaling what you do. Yeah. And, and Ed, uh, I'm, I'm dangerously painting with broad strokes. Uh, I love what you're, I love what you're saying. And it not, not something that I would expect to hear from somebody that spent a lot of time in the investment banking community and teaching in a business school. And yet you've, you're, you're committed to the data and understanding too, right? And the data says, right, these are the deep principles that we need to embrace if we're going to be successful. Well, and when I, when I, when I left the, um, the business world and went to academia 19 years ago, I, I started out with a question, okay, why are some businesses much more successful than others? And I did lots of research on high performance organizations, um, which led me then to research on high performance leaders, uh, which then ultimately led me to basically where I am now on the, the we'll call it the science of, of, of learning. And what was so fascinating is, is that the, going back to the 1970s, there's basically been nine books written on what are the characteristics of high-performance organizations, nine books. Started out with Tom Peters. He was one of the first books. Um, it, uh, you know, uh, and one of the nine books is my book. And, 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 but there's eight others. What's fascinating, no one ever has taken those books and basically read them and thought about them and said, here's what this book said, this book, this book, and compared it. And I did a research report on that. And what's fascinating is, is that every research, every book came up, they may have used some just tweaks of words, the same eight determinants of high performance. So there's no mystery as to what it is. And high performance is a certain type of leadership, all right? A caring, compassionate leadership, if you will, more like servant leadership than command and control. Uh, and I mean, one of the most efficient organizations in the world that's over 100 years old is UPS. Its founder believed in servant leadership all our workers are human beings and we're going to help them develop and be all they can be. And when UPS all the way till it went public, every employee after a certain number of months owned stock in the company. It was a, the, the, it was shared prosperity. So we know what it takes to build good organizations. We know what it takes to build leadership. Uh, the former president of Stanford University, who's one of the founders of Silicon Valley, John Hennessy, wrote a book on, on leadership, okay? It's back here on my Leading Matters, all right? Yep. Comes down and he looks at behaviorally, what is leadership? Each chapter, okay? Humility is number one. Then you go all the way down and it's the same behaviors that are needed for people to be great learners. I, I love it, I love it, Ed. So the science is not in dispute. Where it falls through the cracks is the lack of, of people being trained how to do it and then the lack of discipline and focus and stick to to do it. I, I really appreciate that. I, we're, we're coming close to time. And one, one of the things that, can maybe related. I usually talk about uh, if you ever find yourself stuck, how do you get unstuck? And also talk about the notion of advice. I might press those together just a little bit. What is your advice to to that inner stillness that you know that that we need? Do you have do you have tips for people to start? I mean, this could be a whole bigger conversation, so I don't mean to, but where where do people start to go down this path so that they might be a better learner that's that's a great question and all of this is science based all of this is neuroscience based the ways 
ways to start. Number one, learn how to manage your mind, and that's through mindfulness meditation. You start with that two to three minutes a day, and you do it every day, and you work up to five minutes, you work up to 10 minutes, and you keep working till you get to 20 to 30 minutes you're doing a day. Some people do more. So basically train your mind so you control, you don't let your mind and thoughts control you. This, the second thing is, is you need to quiet your ego. And the best way to uh, quiet your ego is to basically um, every, every day be, express gratitude to people that have helped you. Say thank you, all right? So gratitude. The other thing is, is to be able to control your emotions so that your emotions just not a running rampant. And the best way to start there is with deep breathing exercises. Uh, they're used by all the special forces of the United States military. All right, is to take do deep breathing. So do five minutes of of um, of what's called coherent breathing. Um, uh, just deep breathing, slow in, slow out, and count. So you got you can start with meditation, gratitude, deep breathing, and then the fourth component is you make up your list. How do I want to behave? How do I want to be? And every morning you read your list. Okay, I mean I've been doing this a long time, and I have. Right here, I have my journal here with me. I have my daily intentions. Speak kindly, act kindly. Say thank you often. Smile more. Be compassionate, caring, non-judgmental. Be positive. Manage my mind and manage my negative emotions. It goes on. And you read that every day. And then at night, at night you give either to whatever religion or however you want to do it, but you give thanks for the day and gratitude to the people that helped you. And then you review yourself. How did I do on my, was I kind today? Where was I not kind? Ooh, do I need to basically make amends with that person? And you start basically taking ownership with yourself. And it doesn't take a lot of time. And if people spend really... And the key is you don't do it two days a week or three days a week or four days a week. You do it seven days a week. And if people invest 30 minutes in the morning and 30 minutes at night, they will see unbelievable changes. And there is science. This is validated. This goes back 40 years of research. This stuff works. It all sounds a little swishy, a little bit, you know, whatever. Um, um, most people, you know, they, they've never been, they've never researched it. They don't know it. But big corporate, you know, today, many, many big companies have meditation rooms for their employees to be able to go into. I work with companies that every meeting starts with a five-minute meditation, quiet time, to calm yourself, to get in the right frame of mind that we can have a very positive conversation. And so that's how you start the human transformation. Uh, and the research is based on high-performance athletes, musicians, artists, and the high-performance special operation teams of the United States military. Okay? The Navy SEALs do deep breathing. Okay? Yep. The, Navy, the Navy SEALs take control of their emotions in their mind. All right? They train their 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 mind and their body okay so that they go when they go into their missions they are calm and they can sense what's going on yeah that breathing too what i found interesting as i remember my dad my dad was a firefighter and share, sharing with me uh one of the things that you noticed about rookies versus uh you know more more veterans was trying to coach them on breathing right because you have the air tanks but and and not getting not getting overwhelmed because you know, running into fires is not normal human condition right so 
your your body is wanting you out of there. But he did say to you that um, just how quickly rookies would go through their air tank versus like veterans. Like my dad said, there were like, and he remembers being young and like him going through a tank fast. And then like some of the old veterans, it's like the the entire fire and they're still on their, their first tank. And, uh, but yeah, that connection almost going both ways, calm, breathing to calm yourself and how staying calm can keep your breath normal. And, and the calmness, the inner calmness is what increases your ability to basically think creatively, innovatively, to solve more complex problems. Yep. The you that's at the table is more of the you than the normal you that yeah. comes to the table. When you basically come to the table with that, okay, let's take, you know, and I mean, I'm not saying I got it all, all, all yeah. made or understood, but I mean, and it doesn't matter how good you get at it. It's this is a good that keeps on giving if you keep working at it. All right. I mean, you know, I'm we're we're doing th- this podcast. I mean, you know, you know, I I think I know a little bit about what you wanted to talk about, okay, uh, et cetera. But what did I do? I came at my desk five minutes before I I went on. What did I do? did deep breathing exercise and I felt my body relaxing and then there was nothing in my mind wasn't thinking about anything and that's when I dialed in that's when I'm ready to talk to Matt when I don't I don't I don't have a I didn't have a I didn't have my list of things I got to make sure I say these eight things or I got to make sure this or that no, no, we're going to go wherever Matt wants to take this whatever will be will be and it will just come from me and I'm going to be at peace with all this. Well, Ed, I I really appreciate this uh, so much. Uh, it's always a joy to talk with you, and I really really appreciate you doing a deep dive, talking about all of these these things that can help us uh, become better learners and better people. So, thanks for taking the time to join me on the podcast today. Well, thank you for having me, Matt. And it's been great great being with you. I learned from you, and I I, I love your approach and what you're and what you're doing with this podcast. And uh, so uh, you've got a fan here. You've got a fan here. I hope our paths cross again. Me too. Thank you.